2: Podcast, The podcast for wildlife habitat management,
3: hunting strategy, and land stewardship. And now, your host, Jared Van Heen. Welcome back to the Habitat Podcast. I'm your host, Jared Van Hees, so we're here to become better habitat managers. Guys, it is mid-October. Thanks so much for tuning back in. We have a great episode for you here today. We have our friend, Neil Hogger. Neil is a Wisconsin native, uh, Whitetail Properties Land Specialist, um, heavy investor in real estate, both recreational and some rental properties, um, habitat manager, a new member of our HP video team. This guy is great, and we have him on for an awesome episode here today, guys. We are talking to Neil. You know, we're going to cover who he is, where he's from, all that good stuff like we normally do. We talk about Neil's approach to habitat on his property. So Neil owns a pretty decent sized track over in Wisconsin. We're going to talk to him about what he does habitat-wise on that, his food plot strategies, his stand strategies, access, etc. A lot of the good things we like to cover. We also talk about what habitat improvements work in certain areas of the state, like northern Wisconsin versus southern. Uh, we also talk about a lot of real estate. We talk about what to look for when shopping, the top five items Neil likes to see in properties. If you're looking, um, you know we've been talking how crazy this market is every time we, we talk to Chad Thalen, and it's just it's a good time to look for and or sell your property. So we really dive into it with Neil on how he handles his business. He's a great upbeat guy, and we're just excited to have him as part of the team. And uh, this episode is awesome, so please enjoy as we surely did. Now, I want to talk to you about a couple of our partners. First off, if you guys have not heard, um, our dear friend Nick Percy at Killer Food Plots uh, passed away this past weekend, uh, Sunday night. Uh, He was in the hospital with some COVID complications um, and uh, unfortunately did not make it. Nick was uh, 50 years old, he was a close friend of mine, uh, you've heard him on the podcast here many times, so knowledgeable, so passionate, just an amazing guy, um, and I just want to let you guys all know, if you hadn't heard, if you hadn't seen our Facebook or anything, um, we, we did fire up a, a GoFundMe for Nick and, and his family, he has a wife and a daughter, uh, so I put that in the show notes below, you scroll down and see that in case you guys want to help out, but I um, just want to update you guys there. Uh, unfortunately, uh, we will not be hearing any more from Nick. Um, and just really very devastated, very sad, sad thing here. So I want to give you guys an update on that. Um, but we're going to keep him and, our, and his family in our prayers. And, uh, you know, think of him a lot while we're hunting hunting this year over killer food plots. And just it's just crazy. I don't even really know what to say. Uh, so... That update is there. Now, I want to also talk about another podcast episode. I think we're going to record one tonight for the weekend. It'll be kind of like a bonus episode. So keep your eyes open and ears open for a bonus episode coming on, you know, mid-October time frame, late-October time frame, talking to a couple couple of us, just kind of what we're seeing, what we're dealing with right now in the woods, um, what's to come, some key indicators that might help you determine when you want to get out in the woods uh, at the right time versus the wrong time so keep an eye out we have something coming hopefully get that recorded and get that up here in the next day or two um, that, that'll be awesome it, you've heard from a you've heard from everybody on the podcast before but it's it's really great really some some great expert opinions there and and you guys are going to like it now i want to talk about exodus trail cameras before we get rolling here I have both of my render cell cameras up on my properties. I I drove up north and put one on the new family property. Uh, Not really in a great spot because I had very little time due to my my daughter having to go to the hospital. But I threw one up, slapped it up, got a little eight point on there already, uh, and that camera's working great. Then I threw another one up on my 15 acres. That one is working great as well. What's really cool about the render is you can have... Uh, the text messages or the, the you know, the camera sends you the information, you can do videos through there as well. So you actually have cell cam videos sent to you, which is something I've never done before. So I'm going to end up putting that one on a scrape. Right now it's on a food plot, but most of my cameras are on scrapes as of right now. I would urge you all to, to do the same, get them on some scrapes. And uh, the video mode can really show you a lot more, especially if you don't have to go in there and, and check it, right? You can literally check your phone uh, on the Scout Tech app from Exodus and be able to see what's going on without stepping foot on the property. Self cams are huge. We talk about them in our land plans with our clients. We talk about them on the podcast all the time. And Exodus makes some very nice cameras. They also have five-year warranties on their cameras longer than anybody else that I've seen that I've used and uh, the first ones to do that in the game. So check those guys out. Um, Exodus Outdoor Gear, if you Google them check them out, tell them the podcast venture. We also have a uh, discount for anybody who is a land plan client. So keep that in mind. Now guys, I also want to talk about Afflictor broadheads. So as you've heard before, Brian and I have been looking at shooting some new broadheads this year. Um, our friends at Exodus, our friends, Clint Campbell over at Truth From the Sand. Uh, all these guys have been shooting these broadheads and I got to fixed blades last year. Brian got back to them this year. We're really liking them. Um, they're, you know, the, the ferrules for the broadheads are made in Dayton, Ohio. Uh, the broadheads are, are hand-assembled in Texas. Uh, I'm shooting the fixed EXT 155-grain two-blade. It also has two little bleeder blades on there. But I like that tall, narrow blade profile for uh, bone splitting, if need be. Um, they fly great. I'm out to 40 and 50 yards of them. My You know, they're very durable. I've been shooting the practice head over and over again, and... Uh, I cannot wait to run one through a deer. Brian blew his K2 fixed blade through a doe already, and that doe didn't go anywhere. So that's a video on our YouTube, if you guys want to see that out, Doe Management. He shot a giant doe on our lease down there with the Afflictor K2. But what I want to tell you about them is they have a YouTube channel where they're putting out educational content for all broadhead users. So check them out. Go to uh, YouTube, look up Afflictor Broadheads, and be sure to subscribe. While you're there, hit the podcast subscribe to our channel as well um and then exodus again guys those guys great youtube channel putting out educational content that's what we're all trying to do all three of us so i figured i want to hit that for you real quick and um just do us a favor check them out you want to shoot some new heads uh i'd recommend these these are durable and sharp i was unscrewing one off my arrow last night to put a field tip back on to shoot in my barn and uh Almost cut my finger open. Now, I don't know if I'm just a doofus or what, but I I always just use my fingers to tighten on broadheads. Always have. Probably always will. Not recommending it. And uh, just never had an issue before. And this one, it's sliced in. So be careful if you're putting on broadheads by hand. I don't recommend it, but it's just something I've been doing forever. So, anyways, it was cool to see how sharp it was. But check them out. Afflict your broadheads, guys, and we will uh, let you know how we like them once we put them through a few more deer. As well. Now I want to thank um, Packer Max Cultipackers, I want to thank Killer Food Plots, Michigan Whitetail Pursuit, The Squirrel at NutPlanter.com, Realtree United Country Lamb Pro, Lake States Realty and Auction, and Morse Nursery. Guys, we have great partners. Uh, we'd like you to support them as they support us and, and keep us giving you this free content. We hope you like it. Um, We also are sending out some great 5-inch podcast details for reviews. You've heard me talk about it before. We're still doing it. We're all caught up for the most part. If you haven't got yours, shoot me an email. Somebody emailed me last week. That worked out great. Got it right in the mail that day. So we appreciate your support, and we'd love if you could go to iTunes or Stitcher or Google or somewhere to leave us a great review and let me know and I'll get you a detail. Alright, well, thanks again for tuning in. Uh, We are going to get right into it with Neil Hogger on uh, Wisconsin property, real estate and habitat. Ladies and gentlemen, we are back. Brian, what's going on over there in PA today, buddy?
0: Well, we are two days away from the opener in unit 2B, which is the place my house is in so all the permission farms i've got around here i'll be able to hunt on saturday of course it's going to be 80 degrees but hunting season's here so something to smile about anyway
3: heck yeah good things to come good things to come and um we have a pretty special guest today we have mr neil hogger how are you doing today neil
2: i'm doing good thanks for having me
3: of course of course thanks for hopping on you've been uh if anybody follows the habitat chat group, I'm sure they've seen you in there. You've been doing some awesome stuff in there and, and on your property. So it's fun following along on your social media, so happy to have you. Thanks for hopping on.
2: Yeah, no problem.
3: So normally we kick this off with uh hearing about who you are, where you're from, all that good stuff. Give us the uh paint us a picture if you will. Okay.
2: Well, um, I live in northwest Wisconsin. Um, I'm about 30 minutes east of Minneapolis, uh, St. Paul metro, just into Wisconsin by about four miles. And um, I grew up in the state, uh, in southern Wisconsin, and, and I did do some time in the military. I lived out in California for about just under 10 years and uh, worked as a, as a corpsman in the Navy out there, uh, full full-time active duty. And then I challenged the state nursing boards while I was the corpsman in the military. And I worked as a nurse for about nine years in chemical dependency and psych out in California. And really wasn't my calling. Um, And um, I came back to Wisconsin uh, probably about 1991 and uh, traveled uh, three days by truck, arrived in La Crosse, Wisconsin, I spent the next five years there. I got a, my master's and graduate degree out of lacrosse and um my masters is in cardiac uh rehabilitation. I was trained to rehabilitate heart attack patients and but I um instead of going clinical I got into sales and I um spent about thirty years in medical device sales, kinda climbed the ranks from a from a, a field Uh, agent, sales guy. Uh, Started on pharmaceuticals, then got into devices three years later. Um, So as a device guy, I sold electrophysiology products to cardiac electrophysiologists. I sold uh, ablation catheters and pacer wires and recording systems. And so my entire working career was in the medical device field. I ended up being the uh, director of sales for a company out of Minneapolis that was kind of a startup. And I Help build that sales force up. We had about 200 salespeople under by the time we were done. And uh, I walked into, into work one day and they said, Come on into my office. And we sat there for a good three hours y- yucking it up. And finally I said, You know, hey, you know, what are, what are we doing? Because I kind of got some things I got to do here. And he so oh, well, we just told the company, You're unemployed. So that was kind of the end of my medical device career. Um, along the way, I started getting some interest in in real estate. I started investing in real estate. Um, I hadn't bought any land at this point yet, Um, but I bought some rental properties, so I have a portfolio of some rental properties. Um, I did buy a piece of land eventually in about 2005, I think it was. I started looking for land, and I started thinking Buffalo County first, but it was probably three grand an acre, which seemed like a million bucks an acre to me, and I ended up buying way up north in northern Wisconsin in the middle of nowhere. Um, I, I bought, honestly, I bought the first property I ever walked on. I made every mistake you could. I let the guy even help me write my offer. And when I look back, at, it, it turned out really well because I ended up selling that property after I improved on it with food plots and trails and whatnot. And I built a cabin on it. I ended up selling it for, I bought it for 119000 I sold it for 375. And I did a 1031 exchange, and I moved that into my other farm that I have now. And now I'm managing 121 acres in northern Polk County, Wisconsin. So that's about 30 years abbreviated fast history right there.
3: Well, well done. I mean, (laughs) I can't believe they talked to you for three hours before they told you they sold the company and you're out of a job, like, Deliver the bad news fast, right? Come on.
2: Yeah, you know it was kind of like we sat. We just built this brand new building. It was we were going to produce our own product. We sold a we sold a powdered hemostat that stopped bleeding in surgery, and we made it from organic potatoes that we grew in Sweden, of all things. And it looked like like powdered sugar in your hand, and you could yeah. literally eat it because all it was was potato starch. But it was pretty. It had some pretty good technology, and you know, I, I got in as their first salesperson and I started selling it. I was, I got sales up to be about 50,000 a month by myself and, and, uh, or excuse me, a quarter by myself. So we were, we were making some moves and then they started, you know, hiring, I started hiring people to help me. So it was a great experience and how to work hard and build a company and but it, Again, it kind of took me away from my interest because I found myself hunting less and less even though I was traveling, seeing the world, and I was living vicariously through guys like you on the podcasts and TV shows, so that wasn't cool.
3: <laughs> well, uh, I do the same, so I fully understand that. And, and yeah, let's get, back, let's get back to the fun stuff. You know, we're talking hunting, and I pulled up some pictures of some Polk County, Wisconsin deer, it looks like. There's some good deer in your area. Yeah,
2: yeah. You know my farm that I bought. So the way I came across it, I was a guy got a I got a call from a guy and he says, hey, I have this farm, and as I always do, I grab a piece of paper and I say, all right, well tell me about the you know details of your farm. Just paint a picture. Oh, it's 121 acres. It was an old farm. It's got some fallow fields and it's got a little swamp. And I know the swamp's not worth anything. And I'm just like, oh boy, that sounds good, you know. And taking notes. And and it goes, I got a pole building on it that I converted into a house. So it's a schaust. Have you ever heard of that? Oh, and I'm like, oh wow, now I'm really interested. So as I'm talking to him, I'm pulling up the maps and I can kind of zoom in with Map Right and I can look at it. And I see this. Heavily wooded corridor down the middle with food plots on the edge and, and had, had a long wooded edge that was all road frontage, but I could tell it was gravel, which I always key in on. And so I knew I had great access. The, the barn itself, the shelves was in the northeast corner, which is always good. You don't want it in the middle of the property. You want it away from everything, but easy, you know, easy access to get into. Um, it was just set up fantastic. So I decided to go up there. And I walked the property and, and, I mean, I literally, I mean, I look back and I kind of heard angels sing because this is like the most beautiful place that I'd ever seen. And and I knew right then I wanted it. And I told him, I said, after I walked, I said, you got a great place here. Um, He told me his price. I said, honestly, I think you're aggressive on the price. I I don't think I'm going to get that. I'll do the best I can. He goes, well, let's give it a shot. But I said, but if I could ever buy this property by selling my property – I'm your buyer, but the chances of me moving it where I'm at is not good, and I just kind of gave up on the idea. So I listed the property, did all of my marketing. I always do. I showed it a few times, but I really wasn't getting anywhere. In the meantime, I get a call from my neighbor up in Ashland County, Wisconsin, where my property was, and he says, hey, there's this company called Enbridge Energy, and they they want your number and what they're I guess they're buying property in the area because they want to run a pipeline through the area. I said, all right, well, give my number and this guy uh gives me a call and you know I'm shortening the discussion a little bit, but he says, Hey, we want to run a pipeline across your land and we'll give you fifteen thousand bucks cash if you let us do it. And I just said, <laughs> I said, god uh, no. Uh, you know, you're gonna devalue my land by fifty thousand. So I won't let you do that. And he goes, Oh, really? And I said, But I will sell it to you. And he said, Really? Okay. Well, what price would you want? And I quick, I've been talking to guys because I've been thinking about selling it. And the other whitetail property guys up there said it's probably sixteen fifteen an acres. And I went, Brr, Did the math, three hundred seventy five thousand. Thinking that's a number he's gonna say no to. It took him about two minutes to say, Yes, we'll pay it. And are you serious? It's like that. It was gone. So, on one hand, I thought, well, now I can go over to the other one. So, I had it appraised. I told my pay the appraised value. I bought it at 375 I moved 375 in it. Um, I had a little bit of a mortgage in there. I'm not sharing all the details, but long and short of it is, I bought that farm with a 1031 exchange, tax deferred, and that's how I got into it.
3: That's, that's cool. awesome. Well done. Let's, um. You mentioned something there I wanted to, uh, to touch on. You mentioned gravel and keying in on that. Tell me a little bit more about that.
2: I like, I like these farms that are a little bit off the beaten path. And on my own blog, I talk about this a lot. One of the keys of what I look for is access. You want it to be easy to get to, but kind of away from everything at the same time. I always tell people, find the geographic travel corridors. They usually come out of the big cities with freeways. And then they go to, you know, county roads. In this area was Highway 35. It's kind of a smaller secondary highway. And then they go to like County E, which is what comes to mind. And then it goes down Johnson's Lane or something. And Johnson's Lane is the farm roads. But all that happens in about two to five miles from that major traffic corridor, and that's exactly what I had. My lane, 56th Avenue, people are going to figure out where I'm at here, which is fine, but it's gravel, which means it's traveled, but it's even less traveled. And it probably has some recreational value too. There are ATVs, snowmobiles, which I like to do both. You can do that, but it's not very often that people travel it, and that's why I like it. But it gives me complete access Uh, for a half a mile on my property, perpendicular. I could come in anywhere along there. I could pop in, and that's why I liked it. So that was one feature of many that it had.
0: Yeah, that's huge. That's something that we uh, come across a lot when we're doing our land plans. It's, It's a lot easier, and we can help the landowner a lot more for sure when they've got that long road frontage where they can pop in easy from anywhere.
2: Yeah. Yeah, my fields on both, in, I call, I have Northfield and then I have Southfield. Northfield's about three acres in size and Southfield, uh, all told with all of it is probably six acres in size. But there's a wood buffer that's a long strip of, of woods, timber all along that, um, eastern edge on the gravel road. So you can't see in, but anywhere along that I have a very perpendicular access where I can you know, really minimize my scent impact and my physical impact coming in to multiple points, multiple trails, different habitat types. There's wetland. There's uh, little ponds that create uh, corridors and pinch points. It's, I mean, it really is. It's perfect. You can walk down that very quietly, make a 90-degree angle, sneak in, jump up in a tree stand, and do the same thing getting out of there. So it sets up really well.
0: Excellent. So walk us through, give us kind of like an overview of, of what your property looks like, how it's shaped, any type of topography. Okay.
2: Um, it's shaped like an L. So I've got two 40-acre parcels that are on 56th Avenue, the gravel road, and then the southeastern uh, 40 uh, goes west and connects to another 40. So it's shaped like an L. That interior 40 is at least a half a mile into the section from any other point, and that's my sanctuary. I don't hunt it. I have a – if people follow me, um, they'll ta- hear me talk about it. I have Taj Mahal blind on there. It's on a knob. It's this old – I don't know what it is. It was an old field or a pasture maybe um, that maybe they grazed cattle, I'm assuming, on point. I turned into a brassica food plot, and I've been sending you guys some video of that. Um And there's a tamarack swamp in there, and that kind of runs the middle of the property. I have a hardwood, um, I'm going to call it a woodlot on the north end, that runs the whole length uh, east-west of my most northern 40. And then there's a wooded corridor, a finger, perfect travel corridor, with food plots on both sides that runs right down the middle of my property and eventually kind of dumps into the big south field. And so I got, so I have a perfect, kind of like a northwest to southeast wooded travel corridor all the way down right through the middle of my property with these fields that create inside corners, uh, the swamp that creates a pinch point where a field, the timber and the, the, the tamarack swamp, kind of like the trifecta of biomes, habitat biomes all come together right there and when I saw that on the maps, when I first looked at it, you know, you can scout with your fingers to your computer. I knew that had to be a good spot. And sure enough, I went there, and there's just a major trail that runs, cuts the corner. They don't want to stay inside of the timber and go around the corner of that big field, but they want to be not running through the swamp either. They're a little lazies, but they, they sneak sure. through that spot right there. Perfect setup.
0: Excellent. So when you first bought that, did you do any improvements right away, or did you kind of sit back and take it all in at first?
2: Well, one of the things that I really got excited about is a lot of the infrastructure was already there. So like with my Mellon property, which I called, that was 140 acres in northern Wisconsin, I had to go in and create the habitat. It was monoculture, just hardwood, timber, some creeks and stuff, but pretty much – From end to end, it was the same. And I went in there through three or four logging projects, and I opened up about seven acres of timber in the middle of literally miles and miles and miles of timber, which was great, but it was a lot of work, a lot of expense, and honestly, I never got to realize it because I sold the property, but it was going to be awesome. The next guy gets to make it better. (laughs) This property, because it had the old fallow fields that it was once where my house is at, there's still remnants of the old farm, there's an old silo, uh, an old root cellar, um, it was already there, but the guy had it maximized it. Both fields were fallow, just let grow up. So the first thing I did was take an assessment. I just looked at, all right, my access is taken care because there's a trail system all throughout the place. Um, I have uh, water in the form of the swamp and some low areas. I don't have flowing water, so I thought, okay, I could put water where I want it. But I had all the fields pretty much already there, and I had travel corridors, and it was pretty predictable. It, it seemed, it's been pretty predictable. So I've, I've been, I started my soil tests as you always do, and I started uh, tilling this, spraying it dead, tilling it under. Um, I found that I had sandier soil than I would probably like, so I've been fighting drought, especially this summer. It's very droughty here. But I started putting food in there, and that was my missing, that was the lowest hole in the bucket. There was no um, food in the winter. They were farmers and they weren't food plotters. So I'm the only food plotter for miles in my area that I know of
0: at least. Yeah, that, that makes a huge difference when you're kind of like your first property, when you're, when you see the, the, uh, lowest hole in the bucket, kind of like you were just miles and miles of, uh, timber. So you had to change that up. Now you're in a situation where it's all farms that, clean off the food before hunting season so now you're going to change that up a little bit that's that's super important to to be the outlier no matter what what you're dealing with for sure
2: yeah they're cutting the fields right now they're taking the corn off and i don't even know if it's ready but it might be used for silage probably for the cattle because there's some cattle in the area and um i've got a nice mix like last year was really my first full year of food plotting and i had um I think I had three acres of corn and the balance was about an acre of soybeans and, and, uh, probably five acres of brassica. So I had, I think I had total of about 10.1 acres of food plots planted. And I've been kind of following the, uh, Sturgis model of the food plot pyramid, trying to get the grains and the greens being the main thing, grains kind of being second. And, um, It's done pretty well. I kind of gauged, you know, did I have enough food? By how long did it last? And I had corn standing in my field still on the stalk up until March of this year. Um, So there was enough with three acres of corn. The beans, they didn't do too well. They kind of got hammered. They just didn't – they didn't really get – I didn't get great beans last year because I got an early frost. They just didn't get a chance to finish out. But corn did really well. Uh, Brassicas did really good. The tillage radish – for whatever reason, on my farm, do extremely well. Um, I've got a brassica mix on there now, and some fields are really lush. Other fields kind of look sick and kind of sickly. I don't know if it's the the pH of my soil is pretty good. I, I did fertilize it, but the, the but the heat and the sun on that exposed soil it just it shrivels it up like a piece of lettuce. So maybe more tillage radish next year.
3: Yeah, you're not, you're not kidding there. I noticed um, I do both no-till and conventional on some of my stuff. Um, and the conventional area where there's still some soil exposed in between the, the planting right now, yeah, that stuff, you know, it dries out quick, cooks, if you will, starts to wilt. Um, luckily, we got a huge rain two nights ago. But, yeah, I fully understand that. I'm sure a lot of people are, are nodding their heads going, yeah, we could use some more rain this year. And But I like how you had that much food. Um, that's a great way to gauge, you know, in March, the have corn. That's huge. And I think, uh, you know, 10%, 7%, 10% of your property and, and, you know, supplemental food like that, I like it. Yeah.
2: Yeah, I would say my target goal has always been at least five. Uh, Ten would be great and always gauge it based on how much is left because they were still digging for that. I also overseed it in rye as an overseed towards the end of the season. I just started putting my rye in about three weeks ago, um, and I'm overseeding it at about 100 pounds. I would say 80 pounds because – uh, 80 pounds at a, at a time, it comes in 40 pound bags, so every time I've gone up there, I've staged it now twice, and I put down about 80 pounds on each food plot on my soybeans, I put 120 pounds down the first time, and I'm just trying to fill in the bare spots, and really my goal is to have a really early green up, I found that they were bedding in that rye, because it got up, you know, neck high, five six, five feet or so, and um it was early green up, and it's, suppressing my weeds so that's another kind of thing i'm starting to do is not i don't want to spray as much herbicides i i, I might as well bald stock in some glyphosate company because i think i put down literally i think i sprayed 350 pounds or 350 dollars worth of glyphosate this year and it's a losing proposition and i don't want to do that this year so i've been tracking those expenses yeah. way too much
0: now that corn and beans or is that roundup ready that you're putting in yeah, but
2: I don't, at this moment, I don't have, uh, no, uh, till, uh, drill or a corn planter. So I did a little experiment this year where I did till where I was going to put the corn and soybeans. I tilled that. Um, the other stuff I didn't till, I just sprayed it dead and broadcast. But I, but I broadcast corn and I broadcast soybeans for the second year, uh, or, uh soybeans for the second year. Last year I drilled the uh, corn in with a 1940s vintage two-row planter. So the cornfields came up pretty good, and I do have corn on them, but they're choked with weeds. And it's, I couldn't drive through that corn to spray it like I could when it was in rows. So I never sprayed it. I just right, right. I just let it go. So I do have corn. The beans come up really well when I broadcast that, except for I did it about 50 pounds per acre, seeding rate and i didn't get enough beans in there so that's where the overseeding of the rye is kind of filling in the gaps is what i'm doing right now on that
0: yeah so you mentioned at first you were worried about how sandy the soil was i don't have any experience with that in pennsylvania or ohio uh, i know jared has seen some of that up his way come on well, up buddy i'll show you the, <laughs> i'll
3: show you the beach sand dunes you can come see it all yeah <laughs>
0: No, but I'm just curious, like, you sounded like you were real concerned about it, but, but you're growing some difficult crops to grow in that sandy soil. What do you think your um, uh, magic trick was to, to have such success in that sandy soil?
2: Well, with the corn, I think that I get enough, I got enough rain. If I get enough rain early, it jumps up. And if I can get it to kind of canopy out a little bit, it seems to protect that soil from not only the sun, which bakes it, but the wind bakes it. Right, So if you can get enough cover on it, that green foliage kind of, I think, has a greenhouse effect, and it holds in the moisture enough for it to do pretty well. So that's what I think with the corn. The beans, surprisingly, even on my Sahara Desert, I've got some videos that I've done on my social media where I literally can grab a handful of sand and just pour it out like an hourglass. I mean, it's so hot, I never took a temperature, but I bet it's over 120 degrees. It's sand. But the beans still do pretty well, which is surprising. So um, so I think what's, what, I'm, what I need to do is I need to keep it protected. So on about uh, two acres of my fields this year, I, I used a cover crop. I bought some seeds from another company that had a blend, and it was about 14 seed blend. I did not spray that, and I had where the corn was last year. I just basically pushed that corn over. And then I, I, I ran over it a few times with my tractor, and I did skip my disc across it once, but if the, I didn't disc the soil. I just kind of chopped up those stalks and got them laying on the ground. And then I started to get a little green weed, so I sprayed it dead with glyphosate once, and then I threw some of this cover crop seed on there right before rain on one field, one acre, and it exploded. I mean, I had beautiful, thick, lush, diverse there was collards and guar beans and soybeans and sunflowers and, uh, just, I mean, all kinds of things. It was just growing like crazy. The other field that I did, same process, it didn't get the rain and it never really took. It didn't, it got up, but it, it was full of weeds and it never got outpaced the weeds. So I've been doing some like no-till using glyphosate and that's why I was spraying so much glyphosate. Um, the jury's still out on that. I mean, if I could get a no-till drill, problem solved. But I don't have that. Um, I just did pick up a two-row planter, an adapted John Deere 7000 that they cut in half, and one of yeah, my that thing said, looked
0: brand new. this picture yeah, you sent me, it's beautiful. Did.
2: All I need is a little help to load that thing up on my trailer. I, I need to get it before he changes his mind. But, but uh, yeah, I bought that for 1,200 bucks. Great deal. Um, really excited
3: about that. Oh, that's awesome. And yeah, I don't have a drill either. I'd like the, I mean, like, it's like I think Genesis is like 15 or 16 grand for just the, the three footer, you know, toe behind mile. Yeah. Somewhere in that, now it could be off, but holy wah, you know. I so, know. Uh, yeah, I like what you're doing, um, the food plowing. It sounds like you and I've been watching your videos, and like I said, in the Habitat chat, you've been putting stuff up there. Um, and, and I like, uh, you seem to be doing a, a great job with your food uh, what else are you are you doing you know to maybe kind of work in your hunting setups like how are you yeah. take us from food to your tree stand and what that looks like and, and kind of your plan there if you will
2: okay every every tree stand that i place um if i if i you know try to actually organize my thoughts what's in my head is access always so it takes a little bit of time to figure out where the deer come from and where they're going to. And I, I'm not going to say I got it 100% figured out. But on a couple of my stands on the north field, for instance, I know where they're coming from. I can sit in my, in my farm and my shouse and I can watch them come from the east. I think they're either right on the edge of my field because it's real thick, and they're either on the edge of my property or they're leaving my property going to the guy across the road, which I don't think he hunts that. So I'm not sure how close, but the does like to stay close to their food, and I would say they're within 300 yards of my food. So with two of my stands, um, they're on field edges. or just inside the timber. I can use my corn and a trail that I've cut to sneak in there very quietly, Deer come from my uh, yeast. They travel perpendicular into my property, going west, and I create a travel corridor where the corn and the um, brassica plot stop maybe twenty feet before the woods, and I create a trail that I've now seeded down in rye and oats, and I'm trying to give them something green, a reason to go through there. And I put a licking branch on that corner. so I'm trying to I'm trying my best to create line of travel in line with what they were already traveling. I'm just giving them more reason to go that way. So with the south and east winds in mind, I can sneak in quietly. I can get up in that stand, and I'll guarantee I'm going to shoot a doe, and later on a buck because I've had them walk that same corridor. So then what I've done is with that habitat manipulation, I've created another travel corridor that leads them into the woods, and then they kind of do an inside corner. They cut the corner on the timber. Um, and if they're coming from the north, down through that timber corridor that I described earlier, I can sneak just inside the wood line with a west wind or a northwest wind. And if they're in that timber corridor, maybe eating, eating acorns or whatnot, they're gonna cut that corner and I gotta stand in an old oak tree with all kinds of limbs and I could just get up in there and it's about it's probably bigger than my waist and I got a 36 inch waist. So it's outside my shoulders, a lot of limbs. I'm gonna disappear. I can come out of my cabin, sneak down this corridor that I've created, jump up into that and they'll and if they're in the timber, they're good. The only thing is on a west wind, if they come out of the the boat bedding area that I started to talk about and they're coming that way, they're gonna smell me. So it's kind of a you know, I gotta give up something to get something. Mm-hmm. Um in that corridor that goes through the mill of my property, I've got two stands in that timber. Both of them are just inside the edge, kind of set up for a north-northwest wind. And I've sweetened, I sweetened one with a water hole and a licking branch. And I'm getting a lot of activity there. Um, I just, it's been difficult to keep it full of water this year, but if, but I think it's going to be a great setup. It's been there for two seasons now and they're starting to really, you know, relate to it and, and come to it frequently. So. To summarize all that, easy access with wind in mind, easy exits without making a bunch of noise in the evening, on travel corridors that I've created, and I'm sweetening them with licking branches and water holes. That's what I'm doing.
3: Awesome. Awesome. Have you done any uh, chainsaw work yet or any bedding area creation uh, on the to-do list, or what are your thoughts there? Yeah, actually, I think it might have been on your... Uh, oh, I, I remember the video now. Mole, yeah.
2: mole. I got yeah. beat up on that one, but... I heard that yeah, Yes, Yes. Yeah. 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 bring that up. <laughs> <laughs> that one hurt, man. Whoever's listening to this, holy cow. Uh, yeah, so...
3: Hey, we all, we all learn.
2: We all learn. I yeah. went out there. I did create. I've been doing some micro clear cuts that are about an eighth acre, and that guy was beating me up about, hey, man, get some chainsaw experience. And I know I... I I'm not completely a Nimrod when it comes to chainsaws, but I'll admit I'm not a logger either but um, so I was out there cutting I get cut down and clear cut some areas and just bend them over and um, that area is a grown up thick and lush and I've got some sand sites in mind where I created some more pinch points and kind of funnel them down with some known travel routes I just kind of sweeten the deal um, I spent some time uh, this summer mostly in the spring where I was doing um, I was cutting rings around the trees. Uh, what's the term? I'm blanking out. But girdling? Girdling. There you go. So I girdled a bunch of trees, but I found out, believe it or not, that some of those trees didn't die. So you yeah, did he, do two rings. I did two. and they Oh, started. really? Yeah. So wow. I don't know if I got bionic trees, but some of them, some of them did, but some yeah. of them didn't. So I went out and bought some um, uh, Tordon uh, the other day, and I think I'm going to start spraying, cutting, ringing, kind of do it all. But I have been – I've got three areas right now that I've started to cut, and it's a lot of work. I mean, I'm pushing 60 years old, fellas, and I can only cut for so long, and I start to get sloppy, and then that guy that yelled at me through the Internet, you know,
3: comes to mind.
0: <laughs> yeah,
3: well, you definitely definitely want you to be careful and, and be able to walk out of the woods, right? So Yes, that's yeah. Look up that
0: Look up that mix that um, Lindsay Thomas recommends. That, that thing, that works super well. I can't remember it off the top of my head. Maybe it does. Um, yeah,
3: I forgot what yeah. it is. Too. It's a little cocktail.
0: Yep.
3: Yeah, it's like the Craig Harper cocktails. You know? yep. he's got one too. I think. Um, no, that's awesome. So, how much of your property would you say is wooded? I'm gonna say, I'm gonna say it's about
2: seventy thirty woods to field. Okay. Which I okay. love. Yeah. I mean, when I when I look at those dream farms, those guys that own in Iowa. And, you know, they show that beautiful footage. They always have those big fields. And the only thing I'd like better is i probably like – I have my eye on a 420-acre farm that I'm now trying to roll up into, and that's got about 200 acres of tillable and 220 acres of timber. That'd be and, awesome. Yeah, but it's like <laughs> 1.2 million or something. Yeah. yeah. I think he wants 1.4, but yeah. that's, a, that's a video I just sent to, to Brian Uh yeah. With the MFL kind of stuff, I think I sent that to you. Or yeah. I just uploaded a bunch of stuff, but great. That's
3: that property. That's awesome. No, thanks for running through there. Yeah, I know. Uh, really looking forward to following along with your projects, obviously. So just uh, it's good to you know get a picture of the property in my head going and and, and really see what what you're working on. So yeah, yeah. What, what else are you doing? What other habitat improvements do you see um, working for you in your area? Anything that we haven't covered yet? I don't think I'm doing anything special
2: that hasn't already been said a million times. Um, sure. I would say, you know, but if I tried to do anything, like I just don't go out there and do haphazard, you know, start cutting trees. And I always kind of think of it like where do they want to be and where do I want to place them probably, you know? So I'm trying to create north-south movement for the most part. Um, so I start on the north end and, you know, One of my really good friends, Jake Eilinger, you guys know Jake, probably know that name. Um, Jake said something to me a few years ago um, when we were at a Whitetail Properties meeting. He says, Neil, you know, it's a process. It's like this stuff doesn't happen overnight. And you kind of get caught up in the details. You almost get analysis paralysis. like you're you're afraid to do anything wrong because I put myself personally out there on the Internet a lot. And... But I think I'm like a lot of people, like you just want to do something, you know you're probably not doing it perfect. And if you ask ten guys that are into habitat, you're gonna get ten different answers, and they're all gonna be different. But I get I got the big picture, I, I want bedding here, I want travel routes there, my access is this way, and then that's the major stuff. And then the micro stuff is the is the food plots, maybe watering holes, mineral sites, licking branches. That's the fine-tuning. All the way down to the real detail work is which tree do I need to be in? But when I'm doing all that, I do start with, okay, I think I want to be in that tree right there. Like One of my cuts I'm thinking of is like I, I, I cleaned out an area by hinging, girdling, and cutting. And then I'm felling some trees kind of down where I'm going to block them. They're not going to be able to come through there, so they're going to have to come around my way. And then that corridor is about 30 yards wide, and I'm going to then go in, and, and Jake taught me this, you know, raking a trail, blowing it through, maybe even throwing down some seeds that'll get a little bit of growth in there. Just give them a reason to come to, and then have a social hub with the with the watering holes and the licking branches. They don't allow minerals with us in our area, but a reason to come that way. And then, of course, my access is perpendicular. I mean, there's really, it's a 90-degree entry. There's only one place they're going to smell me. And and then I picked a tree that was a group of oak. There's three or four trees in a clump. And I'm up in there 23 feet high in a ladder stand. And, I mean, you're virtually disappearing. The only negative about that is behind me out in my north field, I've got food. So if they don't come the way I predict them, they're going to smell me back there. And then it's scent control as best I can. Ozonics, uh, scent, you know, sprays, and I always get myself as clean as possible.
3: So it's not perfect. No, I, but, but to your point, you know, where you where you started, we all, you know, want to do it right and not screw something up, right? Um, that's kind of why we have these land plans We can help, you know, people get on the right path right off the bat and not do, you know, what I did and learn the hard way on a bunch of stuff. But at the same time, a lot of this can be undone or fixed, right? If you if you create a hinge-cut bedding area and it's backfiring on you for some reason, you can go in there and clean it up. Um, you know, trees take a while to regrow if you cut, you know, a bunch of trees down, but a lot of this stuff has to be tweaked, um, you know. You're not going to get it right right off the bat the first time, every time. So, yeah, I, th- I think having the, the listeners probably already know, but just not being afraid to go try something because you're going to have to tweak it next year anyways, most likely, or or maybe move, you know, that corridor a little closer to your stand and move your stand closer to the corridor, however it works. It's it's a never-ending process. And uh, oh. another comment from Jake, Jake always says, it's like deer hunting year-round. You're always oh, yeah. you're always thinking and strategizing and getting pumped up about it. So it's pretty neat. Up to our wives. Yeah, yeah, that's true. <laughs> I'm to the point now, I've been married,
2: I just came over 17 years, and my wife says, when are you going to go to the cabin? Nice. (laughs) Okay, see you later.
3: (laughs) So tell me it's going to take 17 years to get that comment, though. Shoot, I got some time now. Three more years.
2: (laughs) Yeah, really, yeah. When I had the Mellon property, which was three hour, 45 minutes, she liked to go up there snowmobiling, and we built a cabin eventually, and so she liked it in the winter time, but, I mean, I just... I never got her on board with a distance, uh, you know, it's just she just didn't see the usefulness of owning land and making food plots. I'm sorry, she just didn't. But she indulged me, and, and now I work in the industry. So I said, I've got to do this, honey. It's part of my brand. <laughs> People expect it. Exactly.
0: <laughs> so are you seeing anything as far as um – um your winter's up there. I'm assuming they're pretty hard at times, depending on the season that you have up there. Are you uh, concentrating on any improvements for that, you know, uh, any conifer plantings or late season food, stuff like that? Well,
2: luckily, I've got habitat that um, is mm-hmm. conifers. So the neighbor guy... If you ever look at my farm, if you can find it, um, and if people want to see my farm, honestly, give me a call. I freely show people where it's at. I had guys that call me, go, oh, yeah, I was driving around your farm, and I saw these 160-inch bucks out in the field to the south. So, anyways, I the, the guy south of me planted a whole bunch of white pine. So, I've got a pretty young stand of white pine, which is great thermal cover. Then right up the middle, I've got a tamarack swamp, and you go in there and you find these little dry humps, and there's deer beds in there. So that's great winter survival, you know, uh habitat. Um, so I'm fairly lucky that lucky that I don't really need to do a lot, and the kind of like the lowest hole in my bucket, in, in my opinion, is the food. So I've been planting the corn. I plant the corn with the with late season in mind. I love late season muzzleloader hunting. After rifle season, when everybody leaves, then I go up there and sit in my blinds and I overlook my cornfields, and it's just really enjoyable for me. So that's probably my cold weather uh, habitat because uh, they live in it, they eat in it, and it really holds them and brings them through that critical time when there's not a lot of food Um there's a lot of snow where I'm at. Um, northwest Polk or Northeast Polk County is pretty far up there in, in Wisconsin. Um, and there's not a lot of it's fringe farmland. So what farms are there are picked clean. So that late season food is really key.
0: Sure. Now I want to switch gears a little bit. Uh, you were just on a show with our friend Jake Hofer from Exodus. I was just fascinated by all the info that you guys talked about with uh, what to look for, shopping for property, getting into contracts and tax tips. And I just want to give our listeners a brief overview of all that stuff, too, because it was just really, really good information. So let's start off with uh, when you're going to start shopping for a property. What what do you recommend people do, what to look for, who to contact? Yeah, well – I tell you,
2: I could go so many directions with this thing, this, this discussion, guy. This is another podcast on just this, but let me, I'll try to narrow it down a little bit. So on there, I kind of introduced this concept of the Fab Five that I kind of, like, if I had to try to put it this, this process in a bucket, I, I kind of picked on the Fab Five. And the Fab Five is actually probably the Fab, you know, seven and a half, because there's other things that come into play. So I'll try to run through some, like, some way to organize a process. The first thing, and this isn't a this isn't self promotion because, um, but I guess it is. Find a guy that sells land if you're looking for land, right? I mean, I'm a real estate agent for White Tail Properties. I think everybody knows that. Um, there's a bunch of us. There's also many other companies, Land Pros, Land Guys, Weiss Realty. I mean, they're all fantastic fellas. They all know their stuff. But there's only about 13 of us in the whole region mixed in with thousands of residential agents. It's not that you can't use a residential agent, but they sell homes. That's their specialty. I can sell your home as well, but it's not my specialty. You want land? Then you listen to guys like this, you, me, us guys in the land industry, because we're just – we're in the know. And we probably know properties that aren't even listed. I got a call today, fellas, everybody's listening. Two hunting parcels, one's got a cabin on it, one's a small 12 acres, and one's 55 acres. Not listed yet, haven't looked at it, going to go there today. If I list that and one of the, my buyers is interested, they should call me because it's going to get sold before it probably gets to the MLS, and that's how you do it. So that's my answer is get next to the guy that sells it. The center of influence is a land specialist in your area, most likely. That's who you need to get next to. That's probably my best advice. If I take it a step further, then I would do this. I mentioned this demographic growth corridors and geographic travel corridors. Look on your map, any city USA, look at those, and you'll see that every center hub metro has these tentacles that go out, the major freeways that then turn into smaller and then get off into the country roads, and then you want to be two to five miles off of that. So Fab Five number one, geographic, Travel corridors. Fab five, number two, demographic growth corridors. Those are the routes, the the regions that are growing fast. And if you're thinking, I'll never sell this property ever, then you're one out of 99 people that are thinking that way. Most people are going to sell their property. There are century farms. They're few and far between. They get passed on and down. Almost every buyer that I deal with is thinking, someday I'm going to sell this. I'm buying it for an investment. I don't have $500,000, 200000 100000 just below. I want to make money on it. So you, the only way you're going to make money on it is you're going to enforce your equity or you're going to get out in front of development. And in front of development is number three, I think. And that is 30 minutes from a metro to an hour drive from the metro with a little bit of fudge factor, maybe it could be an hour and a half. It even could be two hours if you're in Atlanta, let's say, and you're, you, know, you really got to drive. The point is that you're far enough away from your property, but not so close. It doesn't feel like you're getting away. You kind of want to look at it like if a guy in the cities that wants to buy my property, he's got a little cash in his pocket, and he's the guy that wants to buy it someday. He's going to drop the suit. Get in his vehicle, he's going to drive, and by two o'clock, he's sitting in a tree stand. And that's probably about an hour. And that's where most buyers want to be. So, demographic, geographic, demographic corridors, hour and a half. Number four is um, uh, two to five miles off of these travel routes. And number five could be a lot of factors. I look for diversity of a property. I want to see, I don't want to see monoculture. If I see a big piece of timber that's all hardwoods or all swamp or all tillable, whatever, it's not great hunting. And look for the trifecta, look for the three way biome habitats coming together. If you have swampland, timberland, and food, bingo. Every single time you walk on a property and you see those, at least three biomes coming together, you've got edge, you've got food you got habitat, that's where the animals are. So I can go on and on. I like, you know, buildings or no buildings, uh, neighbors and neighborhood, uh, access or no access. You know, there's a lot of little, That's those are all the six and a half, seven and a half, eight and a half, you know, things that go into it. But the Fab Five almost every time is universal.
0: Yeah, we're, we'll definitely have you back on just for a podcast for all that because I'd really like to dive deeper into some of the stuff that you brought up on Jake's show for sure. But uh, just real quick, tell our listeners about, you know, there's nothing wrong with starting small either, especially no. when you're younger. If you just have a little bit of, of a nest egg started and, and want to start small, you could you could build pretty quickly. Yeah.
2: I'm going to approach this like this. Small doesn't always mean small acres. Small could be small budget. And so as an example of that, when I was 20, 33, 33 is when I bought my first property. I was traveling with my job, and I ran into a guy, random doctor that I was talking. And we, I went into his office, and up on his wall looks like you guys had deer and had fish. And I, you know, and I'm sitting there looking around, and you know, he sees me looking at all this, and he goes, "Hey, I noticed you're looking at my stuff." I'm like, "Yeah, you know, man, I just love it up here. You know, I want to own land someday." And that led me to my first property that was only nine hundred dollars an acre, and. I was able to buy 120 acres for 900 bucks an acre, 100, yeah, 120. So somebody do the math on that. I think it comes to $119,000, somewhere in there. Um, so I bought $119,000 budget, which I get those calls all the time. There's a gazillion guys that are in the market at like 100 to 200 with like 150 being the, a lot of guys have 150,000. If you're willing to travel, like I was willing to go three and a half, four hours to get to, you can to get to my property. You can buy more property with less money. So small doesn't have to be small acreage. You just might have to travel a little bit. Then when you get there, I saw creeks, I saw topography, I saw access. I thought, hmm, I could open this up. This is a great flat here. I could maybe put a food plot here. Then you can start to improve it, and that's that forced equity that you can start to make money on, you can make your property more attractive. The other side of that is I get guys going, okay, I, I want to buy a property, and I only want to be 30 minutes from home, and I live in Hudson, Wisconsin, which is my town, St. Croix uh, County, and I only have 150000 I said, okay, do you realize that you're smack dab in the middle where most of the land in the drive time that you're telling me you want, which is 30 minutes, is 5000 bucks an acre on up to, I'm selling as high as $17,000 an acre. Oh, I didn't know that. I said, yeah, you know, you got to be willing to travel with that budget. And the lower your money, the further you need to go to get more land. That makes sense.
3: It makes, it makes perfect sense, and that holds true in, in Michigan, and that holds true anywhere. Um, anywhere. Yeah, you, know, you have to start small, and you know, that's what I did with 15 acres, and uh, I plan on, you know, going up from there. So, Right. Awesome tips. Neil, we're going to have you back on for, for that. We have to. I love that podcast you do with Jake, so we're going to have to have you back on. Um, kind of Kind of wrapping this up here, what do you – well, first of all, we wanna welcome you to the video team that Brian's been putting together. So that's awesome. I'm I'm pumped over here just waiting to tell these videos to come out. I can't I haven't seen any of it. Brian's keeping it all under wraps, he won't <laughs> show me anything. I'm fired up to see what this turns into this fall. No uh, pressure though. Tell tell us what uh, we can expect to see from you on uh, on our YouTube channel this fall.
2: All right, well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to strip down to my orange skivvies. I'm going to run through my food plots like a madman. And Awesome. <laughs> awesome. <laughs>
3: that sounds
2: good. Uh, all right, this fall. Well, um, I'm not much of a filmer of hunts, but I'm, I, I've been thinking I'm going to dabble in that a little bit. I'll, I'll try to rig myself up. I think what I'm going to be showing you guys are kind of like the everyday guy. I mean, I'm an expert in sales. That's what I'm best at. I'm pretty good at hunting and land management. I know more than the average guy, but I'm I'm learning every single day. And I'm surrounding myself with some of the best guys in the industry, with Shameless Plug, the Whitetail Property guys. But I'm friends with the land pros guys, the White's Realty guys. And we share this information, and I'm picking their brain. What I want to do on my videos is I'm just going to show you This is what I think the problem is. This is what I'm doing, and this is what happened. And it ain't going to be perfect. It's not always going to be pretty. Some days I do have these most beautiful, lush, big, leafy, you know, brassica plots that are just – I can't wait to sit in a blind watching deer eating them. But then I walk you 100 yards to the other side of them, (laughs) and they look dead. Yeah. And I'm going to show it, and I'm going to talk about what I did, and I've been keeping a spreadsheet – and I'm actually, at the end of the season, I think this will probably be an episode. I, I've tallied what I've spent, and I'm going to tell you exactly what I did. So I'm going to be doing that. Um, I'm going to continue doing some videos, if you guys like to see us, some shorts about this is the first time I'm ever going to this property, and, like, I'm going to one today, and I'm going to film it. I've never even been there. I'm going to turn on my camera, and I'm going to show you what I see that first day I step on it. And I'll try to break it out and show you that, maybe teach you a little bit, like, okay, notice this, notice that. Detracts from value, adds value. I think this is good. I think it's not so good or it could be good because, I mean, every property has merit. And I'm a sales guy. I'm here to sell a property. I'm always going to try to sugarcoat a little bit. But I want to educate people, and that's what I hope I can be part of this team. Sales, habitat, hunting, kind of combine it. Something unique.
3: That, That sounds perfect. That's, I mean, that's all we're trying to do here as well is learn and, and educate, too, and I think uh, you're going to be a great fit. So appreciate awesome. you uh, hopping on and can't wait to see the content. Um, one last thing. I want to know what your, your favorite tree is, first of all. And, okay. and, you know, go ahead and plug all your, all your stuff, and, uh, and we'll, we'll talk to you again soon. So go ahead.
2: I got two trees that I love. One I don't have
3: any of, or very few,
2: and then I'll go to my second best. My primary one is I would love to be up in a big old spruce tree because I have those in my in my other farm in Mellon, Wisconsin, Ashland, and you absolutely disappear up there. I mean, you can you get up in there and they cannot see you. Um, but I don't have many of those. I have a couple of white pine. Uh, one of them I lost this year to I don't know if it was a bug or what. So it's dead. So he's coming down. If I don't have that, then I want a mature oak tree that has a lot of limbs. And I'm getting older. I don't, I still use a lot of hang-ons, but I'm moving towards, uh, ladder stance. And the big oak trees with the limbs kind of hide those ladders pretty well. And I know for a fact when I get up in them, they don't see you. So I would say a spruce and a big old nasty old oak,
3: white oak. Awesome. Boom. That's it. Awesome. Those are great trees. I love both those trees myself. And, uh, yeah, there's something about those conifers. Just, just Man. Like, uh, thanks, spruce. Yeah. You just, you just disappear up yeah. there. They're the best stand trees. I mean, oaks are great, too. But um, awesome. Well, Neil, thanks again. Appreciate it. Go ahead and uh, plug your whitetail property stuff and how us All right. listeners and, and everybody can follow along with you.
2: All right. Shameless plug. Here we go. Um if you guys are interested in seeing me in my face and watching all my follies and my all the fun I have, and uh, go to, go to youtube.com forward slash Neil Hogger Land Specialist. And my show is called The American Landman. Uh, we've been dropping videos weekly for over a year, and now we drop them about every other week. I'm just changing the format a little bit. So every other week on Friday at 5 o'clock, new video. But I'm doing some shorts in there, and that's kind of a new concept that I'm doing. Usually two minutes or less is quick little hits on topics, and uh, so you can follow me there. Um, you can always go to uh, Facebook as well, Neil Hogger, Land Specialist at Facebook. That's my business page. Um, you can go to Instagram at hashtag WisconsinLandMan, and if you want to go to whitetailpropertiesrealestate.com, you can just find me in the Agents tab, click on State of Wisconsin, and you'll see all the agents there. You can find me there.
3: Awesome, Neil. Well, thank you very much. I really appreciate your time today, and um, we'll be in touch soon, buddy. All right. I love it, guys. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks, Neil. Yeah. Bye-bye. Thank you so much, listeners, for coming and listening once again to the Habitat Podcast. We really appreciate it. If you could, please do us a favor. Leave us a five-star review on iTunes or wherever you listen to this podcast you type out something nice, I will send you a free Habitat Podcast decal. If you haven't been to our website, HabitatPodcast.com, we have our Habitat Property Consultation Services on there under the Land Plan tab. Check out our HP Land Plans there. We also have hats, t-shirts, and decals up at HabitatPodcast.com. Of course, all of our podcast episodes. And then we have a new Habitat Podcast journal, or we can learn about deer anatomy and some cool thoughts, um, you know, more of a blog post from us every now and then. We'd really love it if you went over to our Instagram, Facebook, and YouTube, found the Habitat Podcast, and please subscribe. That really helps us. And thank you very much to our sponsors. I'd like to thank Exodus Trail Cameras, The Squirrel at NutPlanter.com, Packer Max Cultipackers. Afflictor Broadheads, Killer Food Plots, Michigan Whitetail Pursuit, Realtree United Country Lamb Pro Lake States Realty and Auction, and Morse Nursery. Thank you so much, guys, for tuning in once again. Get back with us soon. We're going to have another great episode for you as we become Better Habitat Managers.
1: You're with Captain Scott Walker and Steve Roger for breathtaking deep sea adventures.
0: Coming to me, coming to me, coming to me! Double! He's jumping! He's jumping! He's jumping! Oh! oh. Look at that belly. Don't miss Mondays with Into the Blue, brought to you by Academy Sports and Outdoors from 7 to 10 p.m. Eastern.
2: Tell a few fish stories along the way
0: on Waypoint TV,
1: the destination for outdoor entertainment.